0: To the ICAEW Insights in Focus Podcast.
1: Welcome to the ICAEW Insights in Focus Podcast. I'm Jamie Bartlett. I write about internet culture and technology and especially the criminal side. And to mark ICAEW's Cybercrime Week, which is part of Cybersecurity Awareness Month, we thought we'd try something a little different. So every day there are News stories of huge hacks and massive data breaches. And in my years of covering all this, I've noticed that sometimes these horror stories can kind of wash over people, just more numbers. So today we're going to take the story of just one successful ransomware attack told by someone who was on the receiving end. Then you can hear how it really feels, the panic and the disruption, the dilemmas, when the worst case scenario actually happens to you. And we're grateful that Gareth, that's not his real name, is going to talk us through his experience as an IT manager at a large company who went through all of this. Gareth, welcome.
2: Hi, thank you.
1: And we're also joined by Mike O'Neill, who runs a company called Optimal Risk that offers penetration testing services. So their job is to hack into companies and tell them how they did it. Mike, that sounds like a fun job.
3: It has its moments.
1: (laughs) And Mike will explain, I suppose, how the hackers target companies like Gareth and how, how they think. And then finally, by ICAEW Sophie Wales, who who's going to tell us what she's hearing from members and what this all means for chartered accountants. Not quite as fun as Mike's job, Sophie, but welcome.
0: Hi, thank you.
1: <laughs> OK, I think we'll start with you, Gareth, of course. Just take us back to 2014 and sort of what you were doing, where you were working, how big your company was, what your responsibilities were?
2: Sure. So at the time, I was a system administrator managing a small team of help desk engineers. And the business was a medium-sized business, around 150 users.
1: And how would you sort of rate your own so I know this is a sensitive question but your own company's cybersecurity measures at the time were you sort of happy with where you we were? I
2: thought we had a pretty good defense to be honest. We had a centralized antivirus system that could manage all the policies and manage all the scans. So we ran regular scans weekly, daily and um, monthly and they went more intense as they went on. We had uh, personal firewalls installed on the devices, and we also had a primitive defense that was quite good. We thought uh, we only allowed VPN into the site. We didn't have uh, any web servers. We didn't have a DMZ that people could take advantage of. So we thought we were quite well protected, actually, from this new threat of ransomware.
1: Okay, now let's go to the day itself. Then, what were you supposed to be doing that day? What, what did what were, you know? What was your what was your day going the to day look was
2: like? supposed to be a typical day of course. I would generally get in in the morning 7.45, 8am and meet with the team. The last one in would have to make the teas and coffees so an actual fact I was the last one in on that day so the teas and coffees were my responsibility. Um, we would have a unofficial chat where we would sort of have a little bit of a rant about some users that were annoying us or any concerns that we had about tickets the previous day. And then we'd move on to um, a more official meeting with the team about how we would prioritise our tickets, how we would manage that day, really, if the guys needed any escalation, if they need any support from me or from any other management.
1: Okay, so nothing unusual in the day itself. You got there, had your teas, your coffees, made, you know, by you. Yep. Everything's going well. Tell me what then happened.
2: So I was working on some projects. Actually, I was um, managing a an installation of SharePoint on premise. So I don't we were, know what that means. I'm afraid it's, a, it's just a document control system um, where we had some audit. So we had some long conformances with an audit, and I was actually speaking to the the compliance manager about how we're going to control the documents um, check and checking in out how how could we ensure that our systems are, are verifiably auditable. So the help desk phone started ringing and none of the guys were there. They were out on jobs. They were sort of dealing with the users and they would have a list of users that would go around and see in priority that we discussed in the morning. And the phone was nonstop ringing and I would ignore it usually because my role wouldn't be to answer those phones. And the compliance manager was kind of looking at me as if to say, are you gonna get that? I was like, no, 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 don't worry. We can carry on our discussion. And then it kind of continued, it would go off and then the phone would go off again and it would ring out and then it would keep going, so.
1: And you're thinking this is not normal now? Not
2: usual, so after sort of two, three minutes of letting the phone ring, God had to say, excuse me, uh, apologize to him and, and take the call. And it was quite a strange problem that was reported actually. The users reported file corruption. And it's not something that you really hear. Usually when you hear that, your mind goes straight to, okay, user error. Have they deleted the file? Have they saved over any information? Have they actually copied the file and opened an old copy or something like this? So uh, I went around and looked for one of my guys and said, look, this this user's having problems with file corruption. Can you go and see them, please?
1: Should be a simple problem, by the sound of it. Should
2: be. Should be a simple problem. So I walked around the building, found him. Managed to tell tell him where to go, and I made my way back. And my other staff member was sitting there, and and his face was white as a sheet. He looked like he was terrified as to what was happening. And I I couldn't understand why he was so perplexed. So we had a system where we wouldn't necessarily use our IT accounts to have access to all of the file directories. We would have an admin account, which is generally best practice. Mm -hmm. So he, he said, look, I'm going to use my admin account. and going to check a few files. So I said, OK, yeah, I'll, I'll have a look to see what the what the problem is. And he opened a file, and it it came with a message, file corrupted cannot be read. So I thought, well, that's really odd. It's just a normal file in a normal directory. Same thing you've already heard as well. Same thing I already heard. We do a, another couple of files in the directory, and the same message occurs. He moves to a completely different directory because our business is quite segmented. There were smaller teams around, and finance, operations, purchasing, was generally quite spread across the business. So we we investigated these files and we noticed that there was a text file sort of at the bottom of each directory where these files were corrupted. And this text file read, all your files have been encrypted. You have been a victim of ransomware. It was serious. And going through the text file, they said, if you do not send Bitcoin to this address, Then we will encrypt your files forever. We will not give you access to a decryptal. And that's kind of when it hit me as the scale of this problem, because we did manage to go through quite a few directories and file after file, directory after directory. We could not open really important files.
1: And what are you, what's going through your head at this point?
2: Well, usually I'm quite calm and collected about these things. So I tried to show that I'm reasonably calm and. A couple of members of the team do tend to panic if something is quite serious. So I have to maintain a level of coolness, really, just to show that everything's okay. Don't worry, guys. We're going to get it back. But inside, I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is not something I've ever experienced before. Not something I've ever even heard about before. This is the first I've heard of Bitcoin, and this is the first I've heard of ransomware. So it was worrying, to say the least. (laughs) And
1: it's all hell-breaking loose around you as well. I mean, if and more and more phone calls coming in as other people in the business saying, what is going we,
2: on? We stopped answering the phone. We sent an email out saying, we, we we're we aware that there's an issue around file corruption, encryption. So please bear with us while we try and retrieve some of the files.
1: Now, we'll come to, to you in a second, Mike, but you must have had some contingency plan or something. How, what, what had you in place for... Not necessarily this attack, but these kinds of problems. So
2: we did have a backup solution in place. It was quite a new cloud solution that we had. So all of our data would back up to a local server, which would then replicate to the cloud. But the problem with that is it throttled a lot of our bandwidth. We only had a small internet connection. So the length of time it took to back up all of our data, it would it would continuously go throughout the day. We set it up to go overnight, but it would, you know, inevitably run over. So if people needed to use the internet, which was quite a lot of the business, they were reporting slow connection. So we had to throttle the, the backup to make sure that the users could actually use the internet. So the backup was moving really, really slowly over the net. And we also had another solution called Volume Shadow Copies, which basically takes a copy of your files and, and stores it. It's a Windows server thing. So I'm thinking deep down, oh, yeah, it'll be fine. You know, Possibly we we could just get these files back um, it would be a huge disaster recovery project, but I'm thinking, you know, we could, we should be able to get these files back. Right.
1: Now, we're going to come to the disruption it caused and what ultimately you had to do in a second. But before that, Mike, what what do you make of this story? Your, you know, your job is, I suppose, a bit from the attacker's perspective. When you're listening to this, what's your first reaction And tell us a bit about it from the attacker's side. What are they doing here? What are they planning? What are they thinking?
3: Well, they're probably looking at any number of targets and they'll exploit a vulnerability that they find. There's all sorts of places on the dark web where hackers share information, compromised credentials, things like that, and people might pick it out, have a go at a few companies, see what they can do. And then if they find a way in, they might start to build on that and exploit it. So it really depends. Sometimes people might target companies specifically because they think they've got lots of money. They think they might have a lot of sensitive or useful information, intellectual property, research and development. So there's a number of reasons why companies may get targeted. It could just be coincidental. There was a a compromise that had been leaked. You know, you also get hacktivists out there who have particular issues against companies. Sometimes they're in it for money, sometimes just because they want to make a point.
1: So you're sometimes targeting a company, but sometimes you're just not. You're just, you're targeting a weakness in a piece of software somewhere, anywhere, doesn't matter where.
3: That's what the hackers are looking for and they'll put out a load of checks to see what comes back that they can actually pick up and
1: exploit. And this kind of attack, how do you got any idea of how common this is? I mean, we always hear it's, it's sort of increasing all the time. Back in 2014, pretty unusual, but... Quite rare at the time. Things have moved on since.
3: I think, yeah, 2014, Bitcoin wasn't that well-known. Ransomware attacks weren't that well-known. They, they were in the community, but not uh, widely aware of... I just had a look earlier today. I think there were 304 million ransomware attacks around the world in 2020. Interestingly, the UK was only about 12th or 13th on that list. I think India, America, Mexico were mm. in the top three. But it's obviously growing. Yeah, you know, We're what, I don't know, fifth or sixth largest economy in the world. So there's money there. More recently, we've obviously had that move to hybrid working that may bring in other vulnerabilities that people can exploit. But basically, unless they're motivated by some kind of you know, activist drive, then they're after your money or your secrets or anything that is of use to them or, or potentially their clients.
1: Do you know, uh, Gareth, how they got into your system?
2: Not at the time, we thought we were fine because all our devices were patched. We understood that the level of security awareness of our staff was really low. But it wasn't ever something that we'd considered. So what we think has happened is a hacker or you know, someone who's sending phishing emails has found an email address, whether it was LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter or scouring social media for information. So we think they found someone who worked at our business. They found their email address was a work email address and just guessed, I think. I just had a go and maybe found other people that had the same email domain and hope for the best.
1: That is one thing, actually. People increasingly using work email addresses all over the place is actually a bit of a problem, isn't it?
2: It's really difficult to hack actual devices if they're behind a perimeter. You have unpatched devices but if there's no route in, if you don't have a web server to exploit, if you don't have something that's outside of the network, it's really difficult for someone to scour your perimeter and find a route. So, the only way it could have been was it just had to have been a phishing email. Someone clicked a link in an attachment or someone clicked a link in an email.
1: So you build this really strong wall and you spend all your days sort of trying to police it and defend it and then someone lets them through the front door by just (laughs) opening it and saying, come on in.
2: That's exactly what it is. We didn't take especially good measures. We have a lot of engineers that need quite a lot of access on their local systems. So we gave them local admin access which is a huge mistake but at the time we didn't realize it was so bad and you know the, these programs that are hidden in in the files and hidden in the attachments and the links can really exploit that local system and then use your permission on the network to go through and really scour and start causing real damage
1: right sophie how would you have felt if this had been uh, you in gareth's position
0: it's pretty terrifying, isn't it? I mean, I think <laughs> I blind panic would be yeah. the first response. So it's a chaos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and-
1: are you hearing this a lot? This kind of story. I mean, what for chartered accountants? So I guess are they at risk of this kind of problem? And do you hear about this often? Do you ever get asked for advice about it?
0: Yeah, I think they are at risk, and I think there's probably a few reasons for that. And I suppose. You know, our members who are in practice, their businesses are really dependent on them having access to all the data that they use to provide services to their clients. So if you're performing an audit or you're doing a tax return, you know, it's really critical that you have that data, especially if it's a busy season or you've got a deadline coming up. So, you know, I think people out there know that chartered accountancy firms rely on this data and will probably do anything to get it back. You know, we've also got members who work in businesses in senior roles, so they can be in finance departments and and, and they can be at risk. And then also, I suppose it's an issue for all the clients that our members advise. And if they were unlucky enough to be attacked, I think probably they would turn to their accountant as their trusted advisor for, you know, please, can you help me? You know, what do I do here? And actually, ICAW has a, a fraud advisory helpline that advises people, um, either if, if our members have been a victim of, of one of these kinds of attacks or a different kind of fraud, um, or if their clients have. So yeah, I think we do get asked, so should I pay the ransom? And I think the advice we give is probably in line with what I believe the police would say, which is, no, you shouldn't pay. And I think the argument there is, there's no guarantee you're going to get your data back. You know, the hackers probably won't publish that data anyway. You could be funding other illegal activity and, you know, encouraging them to do it again. Because, like you say, in most cases, people are only doing this to get some money. So if it's successful, then they're going to keep going. But I think the real challenge here is, you know, if you're desperate to have your data back and you want to resolve the crisis that you're having to deal with there and then, you know, you do a bit of a a way up of the costs, don't you? Is it cheaper to pay the ransom or is it cheaper to... You know, having your systems down, having to rebuild your systems.
1: And you're probably not thinking straight either because you're probably so panicked that you're not actually able to step back and really look at all the reasons you've given. That probably flies out of your head when you're suddenly looking at a file that says it's going to be encrypted forever in 24 hours unless you pay.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you have to make a decision in the heat of the moment, don't you? And and I, I like to say that I'd be calm and that I'd be able to make a reasoned decision on it. But, you know, if you need the data, then I think a lot of people probably do end up paying.
1: Mike, what's your view on paying these ransoms? If I can start with one
3: point, we run quite a lot of crisis management training for, for boards. And this is something that comes up quite a lot. A few years ago, they were asking what Bitcoin was. And how do we open an account? Now, making them aware of that, I think, is important because it's those early days and that, those early hours response which are quite important. I think you've got to be pragmatic about whether or not to pay. It depends on the impact of the business. How seriously have you been locked out? If you've got a clean backup, how long is it going to take you to do a full restore? And that can be days. If it's a key part of the area that's been locked down, reputational damage can come on because the people are wondering why you're not responding normally or naturally to inquiries. I think you've got to be a fairly hard-headed, or take a fairly hard-headed business decision about it. There was the recent pipeline in the States where they, I think, $40 million alleged to have been paid. But the point is, you know, get, get your act together after that so they can't come back. You know, scour, how did they get in, what did they do? You've got to reassess your systems continually.
0: You're listening to the ICAEW Insights in Focus podcast.
1: So, Gareth, what did you guys decide in the end about paying this when you saw all these files being decrypted?
2: It was a chaotic afternoon, to be honest. I was dragged into various meetings. There was one meeting that lasted about five minutes where there was sort of defiance from a couple of the executives and said, we're not paying, we're not going to pay. Gareth, you've got to get this back now. So you've got to get this back. Did you just
1: try and explain it might not be that simple?
2: Of course, yeah, but the, the IT was never really taken all that seriously at our place and there was quite a lot of groupthink within the board. So they ended up, you know, I could have an opinion on what they needed to do, but inevitably they would just agree with each other about what needed to be done. So I could have the best will in the world and try and have the best protection in the world. But even as I explained earlier, without thinking about the users being the big weakness there was wasn't really much else we could do apart from trust our backup system and also have good policies in place so you can test your backups regularly and make sure that you can do a full restore if anything like this happens but yeah it was it was chaos so yeah one meeting lasted for five minutes where i was shunted out you know as if it was my fault so i went back and tried to investigate our backups and see what we could get back is, first of all, see if we can get anything back from the volume shadow copy, which was actually just a copy in our systems. But that was encrypted too, so the backups were encrypted. So that's when you have a real danger. So that happened. And then the next step for me was to get in touch with the backup company. If How could they help us to restore this, this data? Then there was another meeting which lasted about an hour, and that was when the managing director was really worried. He was sort of considering what happened a bit more because it it didn't hit them at first you know there was panic blind panic but they didn't really consider the implications of what had actually happened and then they started thinking about the legal implications you know this is financial data they needed to keep it for seven years ten years in some cases and this was happening across various segments of the business so there was lots of different executives talking to the same we could be really in the trouble, we were in a lot of trouble. It sort of
1: starts off as a as a small IT issue and, and the more you look at it, the worse it kind of gets.
2: Exactly, that's right. Yeah. So it then went from my responsibility to a board-level responsibility. You know, They were the ones in trouble if they didn't um, meet the legal regulations. So I was still trying to reassure them that we have backups and you know everything should be okay, but this is literally a full restore. A lot of the network was touched by this ransomware attack purely because we didn't manage our permissions in a in a great way. So going through the backups we found that there was files that we couldn't get back and we found that there was files that we could get back. So it was just a case of trawling through and trying to identify which backups were the latest, identify which backups were the full backups and which backups we could, you know, safely restore in in a timely manner. So-
1: how bad was the disruption overall? I mean, you're, you you you've decided not to pay the ransom, obviously, because you're going through all of this. And that
2: was another conversation, really. There was some in the hour meeting that we had after that quick meeting. It was there was another executive that said, "Why don't we just pay? You know, we'll get it back instantly if we just pay them." So these people were just obviously after money. They didn't say that they're going to steal our data. They didn't say but there was no contact with them. Essentially, it was reading from a text file, that was all the content oh, we had.
1: You also thought, don't pay this?
2: Yeah, my, my opinion was don't pay, because they could give a decryption tool and it would only work for one directory. You know, they could be quite smart as, you know, run different encryption tools on, on different directories and then have different decryption tools to unencrypt or decrypt the data. So we thought, no, that's probably not a good idea because we pay them, then it only unencrypts part of the network that we don't want back anyway, or not that we don't want it back, but it's not as important or not as sensitive as the other data. And then we're still left with a whole load of real sensitive data that is it's still encrypted. So yeah, there was consensus in the end, barring a lot of arguments, and, and there really was heated arguments in that boardroom. And the consensus was, yeah, we, we don't pay, we just hope that our backups are robust.
1: So you got some back, not everything in the end. But talk me through how bad was the disruption. So how long did it take to fix this? How badly did you? I mean, what? How much did you lose? And and what were the sort of the costs, both, I suppose, financial, but resource-wise, time-wise, reputation-wise.
2: Time-wise, it took us five days to get back what we could, and that was restoring backups that were slow because we had to get stuff that was in the cloud. We didn't have everything on our local server. So the local server only kept like a latest copy, but then that had storage issues. So the disruption was major. Five days, it took us to get back to a position where we could actually begin to build our file system back up again and start working essentially. There were some areas of the business that could work, but the finance departments quite a bit of operations. Yeah, they were stuck twiddling their thumbs for a lot of the time, you know, dealing with customer inquiries having to you know write down what the inquiry was and not having access to the files they needed to input that data so they were literally working from pen and paper
1: did you have a? I hope you had a nice cold beer after the five days of uh,
2: yeah I did it was it was a huge relief actually yeah it was it was massive it was something that I'd never ever want to go through again and actually we've it has happened again a couple of times but um, not on a big scale and our systems have been in. Such so a place where we can get everything back and always have the latest copy of everything.
1: We'll finish off with a couple of learning points, actually, and what you think you've learned since. Mike, can we open, widen this out a little bit? Let's say Gareth's company's learnt a lot. They've got good backups now. So what other things might a hacker think, oh, it's not that, that ransomware plan we had on Gareth's company's not working anymore. So let's try something else. What's the latest that that is currently sort of being tried out there?
3: There's different skill levels. There are you know, you've got people that are probably, you know, government level trained hackers who can write code to bypass applications and things like that, but that's a very small amount or small percentage. Social engineering is a good way through. We've sort of anecdotally we're being told that there's more physical security attempts to get into buildings now. Classic for years has been dropping thumb drives in the car park at building, somebody picks it up, sticks it into their USB slot. Is that port still open? And it all looks fairly innocuous, but it injects something behind.
1: So physical entries, are we talking about going in with a high-vis jacket on saying, I'm working on fixing the plumbing, and then just sticking a memory stick into someone's computer?
3: Or even asking them to do it because there's a form on there that you want printed out. And They think you're a nice person doing something. There's all sorts of um, issues around that. We do quite a lot of that testing and uh, it's, well, dispiriting really how easy it is to get into a lot of buildings sometimes and get access to even the server rooms or the endpoints are quite easy.
1: You see, sometimes I feel a bit sorry for companies. I have to worry not only about some ransomware getting through because someone clicked on an email, but someone walking through the front door with a high vis jacket on, saying, "Oh, I just need this printed out as well." I mean, it's it's a lot to worry about. So, is it a case of just being prepared for the eventuality that this happens, and trying to trying to make sure your systems sort of well, sort of guarded for backups or whatever? Because otherwise, it sometimes, to be honest with you, it sometimes feels like it's impossible to stop.
3: Well, it's an ongoing challenge and threat. I think the key thing is raising that um, personal awareness around security issues, not only IT but also the physical. If someone's in the building but they should be wearing a visitor's ID card but they're not, what do you do about that? Most people in businesses wouldn't know what to do, so you have to make them say, well, phone the security team downstairs. You don't have to challenge somebody. Just say, I've seen someone here that I'm not sure but can you investigate? But raising that awareness and keep raising it. If you have an intranet and you put monthly information out, try and reinforce it there. Don't hammer the same message because people just switch off to it. But people like to hear about near misses. Oh, that could have happened to me. That really strikes home. And pick other things out, other events or incidents that have happened elsewhere. Get your IT people to look back into it, what was the vulnerability that was exploited there, and make people aware of that within the business, but in an interesting way that catches their attention. If you just keep hammering the same message again and again, people just go deaf to it, really. But that, I think, is the point, you know, let people know that actually the bad guys are out there and they are trying to get in.
1: Sophie, can we widen it out as well for chartered accountants? I mean, so beyond the ransomware attacks, what's the sort of landscape of cyber risk for the industry more generally. What are what are you hearing?
0: Yeah, so our members tell us about all kinds of frauds that they either fall victim to or they see attempts by criminals to try and defraud them. And and one of the ones we hear a lot is payment diversion fraud. People often refer to this as invoice fraud, but this can be someone hacking into, for example, an email system and then sitting in the background waiting for signs that a large payment's going to be made and then they come to life and they create spoof email chains and you know the business thinks that they're talking to a supplier and the supplier thinks they're talking to the business when in reality there's a hacker in the middle and they're changing the bank details and they're very clever and they'll they'll make it because they've been watching your email traffic they'll know how to phrase the emails they'll know what people expect to hear and we do have a, a case study where a six-figure payment was diverted and couldn't get the money back. So Oof. you can lose some, yeah. You can well, lose that's some a tough sums. one.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a clever one. It's a clever one. Both Mike and Gareth are nodding their heads.
2: We face a similar scenario. So our company is global and someone had got hold of someone's name in Germany and pretended to be that person and phoned up one of our HR team and said, the president of the business uh, has changed his bank details. He needs to send a payment to this now because he's, he was over in Germany at the time, and he, he needs payment to this to the bank account. And very nearly, and luckily, it was it was stopped. But yeah, she very nearly sent a payment to someone who was pretending to be the president of our company.
1: Sophie, how often are you hearing about this kind of payment diversion fraud? Then, because this sounds pretty smart and sophisticated, but also. Uh potentially very expensive because i assume the bank will say will you authorised the payment
0: well absolutely i mean if if you've been given some bank details and you've made a payment to that account it's very difficult for you to get that money back i mean the, the banks do have extra controls now where they'll often check that the name of the person that you're paying matches the account but i mean i, I think the fraudsters are clever enough to you know as was just said, to claim that there's a CEO that wants it done urgently. Or, you know, they'll put pressure on people to make you not stop and think and and actually just go ahead and, and make those payments.
1: So what's the advice? What do you tell members?
0: I think it's if something changes, you just need to stop and reflect. And, you know, in something like where there's a large sum to be paid and you've got a different email instruction, you should be picking up the phone and you should be calling the person you think you're talking to and you should be verifying it. And, you know, if you can't get hold of them, then I think you wait and don't be pressured. You know, don't have urgency raised as an issue to make you do something that you might later regret. Has
1: Covid changed anything? Have you seen any difference in the sort of type of threat, the type of attacks as a result of presumably more people working from home and poor IT managers having to set up remote working for everybody? Gareth's laughing. I think he knows exactly what I'm saying. (laughs)
0: I think it has changed the landscape. I I think the phishing attempts that go on, it's gone out of control, hasn't it? I mean, I think on a daily or weekly basis, businesses and individuals are getting emails, they're getting text messages, they're getting phone calls. Because the fraudsters know people are at home or people are working in a different way and they just keep pushing on that door and they know sooner or later somebody's going to let them in.
1: Mike, did you want to put something there?
3: Yeah, that CEO fraud that um, Sophie was talking about, there are a lot of instances where it's tried late on a Friday afternoon, particularly if the CEO or the MD, if they've been following the email trail, they know that he's got on a plane that's just taken off and the email that he's sent saying this has got to be paid this afternoon, but I'm flying to the States so he won't be able to get hold of me for five hours or so. And that puts a lot of pressure on. And I think it's just within an organisation have controls that say it doesn't matter who actually issues that edict. If someone that knows him has got to speak to him and confirm that, it doesn't matter if that means the payment's late. But
1: let's finish up with you, Gareth. I mean, it's a few years have passed now since uh, since this happened. So l- looking back on, on on the experience, what did you what did you take from it? What did you learn from that? What did you change? And what do you tell people now who say, oh, it's not going to happen to me?
2: Say <laughs> so it could happen to anyone. Your users are your weakest link, I'm afraid. The other side of the keyboard is where the vulnerabilities are. So we've mainly sort of got three points, to be honest. Test. Test everything. So test your backups. Have a testing plan. Test you can restore files that are the latest copy. Test your users with fake emails as well have a system where you send them phishing emails with attachments in see if they open the attachments see if they click the link and then set up a landing page that tells them that they've you know failed a phishing test essentially set up a button or set up something in your email system where if they think there's spam or a phishing attempt click a button and it sends it straight to your IT department so you want to get something like that in place policy really important as well so make sure you have policies on training you have a training system where your guys get we have an hour every year for each person um, maybe that's too little but at the moment that's kind of manageable it's sort of two half an hour sessions or three 20 minute sessions something like that we always we have a an online platform where they get invited to enroll on the training course and there's videos that explain all the ways that they could potentially be exploited which includes the social engineering attacks, which includes the people looking over your shoulder if you're in a coffee shop. It includes um, people walking into your building, people leaving USB sticks, people getting text messages even, and of course, people receiving phishing emails. So have an online platform where you can train your people. And zero trust. I know it's horrible to say, but don't trust anybody. (laughs) Verify who it is. If you're not expecting the email, don't click any links or don't open the attachment. If you're not sure who it is, reply or call, or even talk to the IT team. We got this email, it looks a bit dodgy, could be this customer, it could be this supplier, I've not seen anything like it before, it's landed in my inquiries folder, so it could be a new customer, and just get them to check it because it doesn't take a lot. There's a lot of things that you can spot in a spam email that would probably tell you that it's phishing.
1: Right. Well, listen, time's flown by like I knew it would. But I just want to say a very big thanks to Sophie. Thank you so much, Sophie. And to Mike and, of course, to Gareth. Thanks so much for sharing your story with us. Best of luck in the future. Seems like this experience, though, probably put you in quite good stead in a way.
2: Definitely. Our system as well gives us a risk score. So we've got like a red, yellow, green And if we caught sort of hovering in the yellow, then we know that we've got to get more training, more phishing tests. So have a good risk management system as well.
1: There you go, you see. So you you can take even if the worst thing does happen and you can learn from it and minimise the disruption, you can hopefully move forward much better as a business, which seems like what you've been able to do. I'm finishing on a positive note. Well, that's everything. Thank you all very much for listening and goodbye.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to hear more from ICAEW, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.